Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. From Washington, this is CQ on Congress, the nonpartisan source for in-depth analysis of Capitol Hill's policy debates. I am Sean Zeller. The Democratic resistance to President Trump is heating up, the result of the administration's former policy of separating immigrant children from their parents at the border. It's caused a divide in the party between progressives who support harassment of administration officials in the streets and those who worry that such tactics will only inflame conservatives and hurt Democrats at the polls. My guests today are two who worry about our inflamed politics. Ryan Clancy, a former speechwriter for Vice President Joe Biden and now chief strategist for the group No Labels, who's joining us by phone. And later, in our studio, Rory Cooper of the consulting firm Purple Strategies, who once worked for House Majority Leader Eric Cantor, whose loss in a 2014 Republican primary foreshadowed the rise of uncompromising conservatives in Congress. Ryan, welcome. Thanks for having me, Sean. So, Ryan, first tell us, what, what is No Labels? So, No Labels, pretty simple. Launched in 2010, Democrats, Republicans, uh, and independents, trying to find some way to bring our leaders together to solve problems. And, and most of our focus has been on Capitol Hill. So, our, our sort of signature achievement was we inspired the creation of the House Problem Solvers Caucus, which has 48 members evenly divided between the parties who are you know, basically trying to get to yes while everybody else in D.C. is stuck on no. Mm-hmm. And what's your assessment of how things are going right now? Uh, in terms of just the complete unwillingness of, of both sides to work together, I mean, the, the immigration debate is, is a great example. Now, the separation of children um, from their parents, at the, we had um, uh, Democrats enraged about it. And we had Sarah Sanders, the president's spokeswoman, asked to leave a restaurant in Virginia this month. Um, but it's, that's part of a larger story. Um, that wasn't the only instance. We had Kirsten Nielsen, the Homeland Security Secretary, who was yelled at when she went out to dinner at a Mexican restaurant. And this week, we've had protesters outside the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Division of the Homeland Security Department, you know, encouraging the civil servants, people who, who just have a job there, they're not political appointees, to quit their jobs. And so is this, what is that doing to our politics? Is that making our job, your job harder? Yeah, it's so, it's so destructive. Because look, you know, when people, when things like this happen, I mean, people have a right to be outraged and to be passionate. Um, but the thing is, is that people really don't seem to respect boundaries anymore. There's places where politics should happen, and then there's places that should be outside politics. And I, and I, I think most people's understanding is, if you're going out with your friends and family on a Friday night for dinner, then, you know, you should be allowed to do that, um, you know, free from getting heckled. Some people on the left seem to feel justified by the, the nature of the, the problem on the border. Um, but what I would ask is, well, how do you think this ends well? 
You know, there, there's this game of one up, one-upsmanship, and if the if the left is doing it now to uh, folks in Trump's cabinet, you don't think the right at some point will ape that tactic? And it's it's so it's just this constant escalation uh, in things that a year ago or five years ago were sort of seen as beyond the pale. They just get accepted, and it just gets worse. Right, but as a tactical matter, you know, I guess de- these Democrats who are enraged could point to the Tea Party, another movement that which which was based on this sort of real anger about what was going on in Washington, and say, hey, it worked for the other side. I think the question is, how do you define work? Meaning, uh, short term, it it helps you gin up your base, um, and it can certainly help you get elected sometimes, especially if you're talking about getting through a, a party primary where you only really need to appeal to a pretty narrow part of the electorate. But I think it's pretty hard to argue that this helped from a governing tactic, so lots of the people who came in under the Tea Party banner, they're in the Freedom Caucus now. Uh, they are completely incapable of getting to yes on anything. So you at No Labels got involved in a primary race earlier in this year, earlier this year, in which Daniel Lipinski, who's one of the uh, a socially conservative Democrat in the House, he he represents a Chicago area district. He was up against a progressive challenger in the Democratic Party. Why did you get involved? So this cycle for the first time, uh, no labels, but uh, in addition, uh, an allied uh, political group, an allied super PAC that's separate from no labels, is starting to, has started to get involved in elections, and in particular, primary elections. And, and the key, one of the key mandates of this is that if any member of the Problem Solvers Caucus on either side gets a serious challenge, uh, that they will be defended. But you were attacked. Uh, no Labels was attacked by sure. a, a number of liberal groups that got involved on behalf of Lipinski's opponent. Correct. Um, what happened? Tell us what happened. Yeah, I mean, they, I mean, they thought that, uh, you know, we, we intervened uh, to, uh, to support a Democrat who didn't deserve to get elected, who, in their view, was, was at a step with the district. But, uh, I mean, again, the, the way we looked at it, that in this case, it was a Democratic primary. There have been other cases, and there will continue to be cases. Uh, we're going to get involved uh, on the Republican side, and the Republican base is not going to be happy. In, in our view, the bigger principle is what's most important, which is this. If you look at primary elections, turnout is usually only about 10 percent, which means that the people who get elected only need to appeal to a super narrow slice of the electorate that in primaries happens to be much further to the right and to the left than most of the general public. And so especially in these safe seats, as Lipinski's, whoever won that primary was going to win the general, um, you, you have a situation where, where both sides get pulled to the right or the left. And so our thought was, if at, at the primary level, if you could start to bring out more independent and moderate-minded voters, then you are going to start to get candidates who have more of an incentive to appeal to the vo- those voters, because right now they don't. Right. And we had another important primary election this week. Joe Crowley, the fourth-ranking Democrat in the House, lost sure. in a shocker to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a progressive candidate who had worked for the Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders during his uh, presidential campaign in 2016. She ran on a platform of Medicare for all, of guaranteed jobs. She wants to abolish uh, the agency that enforces immigration laws. If these become the Democratic Party's policy positions, what happens in Congress? 
Well, I mean, it, it, it's, it's going to be tough. Uh, I mean, as, as we sort of said, I mean, we, we see right now some of the same dynamics that existed on the right six or seven years ago on the left. If you look at no labels and the people who are in the caucus, some of them are moderate, but some of them are self-described liberals and conservatives, and that's okay. The question is, once you get in there, do you recognize that you can fight like hell for what you believe in, but at a certain point, you will probably have to accept something less than what you want to get something done? And right now, there is no acceptance uh, that that's the reality. That the, a lot of people labor under what I call, I call it like the king for a day delusion, that we're just going to fight to get every single thing we want. And if we don't, then we'll just do nothing. But one day, we'll be able to get enough power where we won't have to deal with those idiots on the other side, and we'll just force through everything we want. And so what you see is Congress basically has one of two operating models. One, they do nothing. Or two, as in the case with the tax, the tax reform legislation late last year, or even the Affordable Care Act seven years earlier, you force through some legislation over the strident objections over the other side. And the second the ink is dried on the bill, the other st side starts trying to undo it. And that's just not a sustainable way to make policy. The other big uh, news this week was the retirement announcement of Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy. Everyone's expecting both parties to go to war over his replacement. How do you, as an advocate for, for moderation and civility in our politics, deal with what's to come on this? Well, part of what we're doing is focusing on things where we feel like we can have some control. So uh, we don't have any illusions about Kennedy is, or retirement is such a big deal. It's, it is going to be a titanic struggle into the fall. Um, and and both, both parties are going to use it to gin up their respective voters. And so we know that we can't get in front of that train and stop it. So what No Labels is trying to do is focus on areas where we think we do have some control. So, for example, uh, last week, actually, uh, we launched the Speaker Project, uh, which in the basic idea is this. There's going to be a new speaker next January in the House. And as we started to dig into why there's so much dysfunction there, we realized that one of the big drivers behind it is the rules that tend to give so much power to the extremes. I mean, you look at the Freedom Caucus, which only has 30 members, uh, and yet they're the kingmakers on the Hill. Well, a lot of that is the rules as to how the House actually works. So what our campaign is going to be about is we are going to try to get members of Congress to condition their vote for Speaker on a nominee who promises to make some of these rule changes that will actually give bipartisan ideas a fighting chance. Ryan, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Sean. I'm Sean Zeller, and you're listening to the CQ on Congress podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, NPR One, and Stitcher. I'm going to turn now to Rory Cooper, a managing director at the consulting firm Purple Strategies. Hey, Rory. Hey, Sean. How are you? So what's Purple Strategies, Rory? Uh, so we manage corporate reputation and advocacy campaigns uh, for our clients. We take the political DNA from Republican and Democratic sides that are a lot of our uh, leaders come from, and we incorporate it with the, infuse it with the brand DNA that kind of comes from New York and Chicago. Now, I asked you on the, sh on the show because you were once a spokesman for Eric Cantor. He was the House Majority Leader, and he was defeated in a shocking, really, 2014 Republican primary by an insurgent conservative named Dave Bratt. And a lot of people are comparing it to what happened this week when Joe Crowley, who is the fourth-ranking fourth Democrat 
in the House of Representatives, was defeated by a progressive activist, a former aide to uh, Bernie Sanders, the Vermont senator during his presidential campaign in 2016. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is her name. And I'm wondering, do you see a comparison between the two? Yeah, there are differences and there are similarities. Um, I'm actually writing on this right now for uh, my Daily Beast column, trying to examine it. And it's been uh, I've spent a lot of time this week thinking about about where things kind of were in line and where, uh, you know, where are the things that Democratic leaders probably shouldn't overreact to? I mean, clearly, New York 14 and Virginia 7 are very different districts. I think that national pundits uh, and sometimes reporters tend to overlook the local aspects of races, the voting patterns of districts, because the national issues that come around with them are so uh, much easier uh, to understand. Uh, Clearly, uh, in Virginia, uh, immigration was always used as kind of the the sole reason for uh, uh, Leader Canner's loss. But... uh, In reality, it was a lot more complicated than that. And probably the same goes for New York 14, where you have a a very diverse district uh, where there's probably some demographic changes and some local attitudes that are changing that don't necessarily reflect the national climate. With all that being said, uh, there's some lessons that leaders uh, in the Democratic Party should be taking away from this. Uh, And it's not to overreact and it's not to rush to the extremes because, frankly, those are the reactions that are causing uh, the problem and just keep exacerbating itself. Right. I mean, I think you do are seeing a division amongst Democrats in Congress between a group that feels like they need to resist at all costs. They need to stonewall the Republicans. They need to say no to everything. And then there's another group that says we can work with them on certain issues. If if there's an agreement to be made we should make. And do you see it shifting more towards those in the Stonewall position, more towards those there? You know, there were 60 some Democrats who voted to impeach the president this year. Do you see the balance of power moving towards that group? Oh, yeah. No, it's the uh, it's what I often call the catch 22 of modern era politics, which is that people are sick of Washington not working, but they want it to work with zero compromise which just makes it impossible for Washington to ever work. And that is uh, that's what members are faced with, the dilemma they're faced with every day, which is that they see sometimes good ideas on the other side of the aisle or partners that they can work with on pieces of legislation that are, um, for the most part, non-controversial. And that is what ultimately, um, you know, that that is discouraged by the base. They want uh, hardcore resistance. And frankly, you know, the, the animosity towards President Obama in the first term of his presidency, you can say, you know, the Democrats can make the argument that President Obama was nowhere near the uh, threat to democracy that President Trump may be. Uh, but the animosity in the Republican base towards him was real. And now that animosity is really ramped up with President Trump in this in a in a very um passionate way where they just viewed uh, Trump as the worst thing to ever happen to this republic. And they want uh, more than rhetoric from Democratic leaders. They want action. And when you're in the minority party, there's not a lot of action you can take. We're going to see that play out with the Supreme Court uh, nomination coming up where Democratic voters are going to expect Senate leaders. And frankly, they're starting to make the mistake of of increasing those expectations that there's something that they can do to stop it when there really isn't. 
And so you end up disappointing people by not being able to fight hard enough. And that's where, you know, Republicans came into those problems many years ago where it was like, well, we just want to fight and we want to fight harder. Well, what did that mean? And that's going to happen with Democratic voters here soon, which is, you know, fighting's not going to be enough. And there's going to be a real pressure, I think, in the next Congress, especially if Democrats are able to retake control of either chamber to impeach him. And it's something that Democrat uh, leaders don't want to talk about right now because it's not politically uh, it's not a political winner for them. But there are a lot of members out there, including uh, Congressman Crowley's challenger, who talk about impeachment and want to press the Trump on it. And that's going to be, I think, the what I've always said is the repeal for Democrats, which is, you know, it was unrealistic that we would ever repeal repeal Obamacare. Obamacare. And Democrats is unrealistic that they're ever going to impeach President Trump. But there's going to be um, there's going to be a, a, a passion in the base for it. So, Rory, we have an election coming up in November. Democrats are feeling very enthused that their base is motivated, that they're going to come out and that's going to lead to big wins. Is it is that the that's a conventional wisdom? What's your take? So, again, it, it, the, the enthusiasm on either side uh, could ramp up in the last four weeks, depending on what's in the news. I mean, I think we all feel like our heads are spinning with every news cycle. And there's a lot of time between now and November, the cliche of every political strategist in um, Washington, that anything could happen. But, you know, right now, uh, Republican voters tend to turn out to vote when the judiciary is a topic and Democratic voters don't. So that's probably not going to be the thing that uh, that gets Democrats out. Is Trump uh, going to do it enough? Perhaps, except for the 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 faction of the Democratic Party that's most angry with the president is also the faction, younger voters, who tend to not show up during midterms. So it's going to be incumbent upon Democratic Party to have a really aggressive get-out-the-vote program. But if you look at the money that the committees have raised, Democrats aren't raising it. You would think that in this environment, with this level of, of animosity towards the president, they would be being able to scrape those low-dollar donors together hand over fist, but it's not happening. They're actually uh, in debt. So are, not only can Democrats uh, try to harness this passion, but can they actually mobilize and fund a effective get-out-the-vote program to uh, to actually turn uh, turn those people into votes? And right now, I mean, you know, I think if you talk to most Democratic strategists, they would shake their head and say, maybe not. Thanks, Rory, for coming on the show. My pleasure. I am Sean Zeller. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on NPR One. And please rate us on iTunes. For more on this and other stories, visit RollCall.com or find us on Twitter at CQNow or at RollCall. 